So many Christians who experience some sort of failure in their life then start to believe the lie that after that failure, that they have nothing left to offer the kingdom of God. John Ortberg said this, failure is not an event, but rather a judgment about an event. Before Jonas Salk developed a vaccine for polio, catch this, he developed 200 of them that did not work. Somebody asked him, how did it feel to fail 200 times? This is what he said. I've never failed 200 times in my entire life. I was taught to never use the word failure. I just discovered 200 ways that did not work. Somebody once asked Winston Churchill what prepared him most to risk his political career by talking bad about Hitler. Churchill said, well, it was the time that I had to redo a grade in grammar school. And so someone asked him, you failed a grade in grammar school? Churchill said, I've never failed anything in my life. I was given a second chance to get it right. So Jonas Salk created 200 vaccines that didn't work. Was he a failure? Winston Churchill had to redo a grade in elementary school. Was he a failure? Absolutely not. Keep that in the back of your mind as you open your Bibles with me this morning to the Gospel of Mark chapter 6 as we continue in that verse-by-verse -verse study. As you're turning there, let's catch up from last week really quickly. Remember last week we learned how the disciples needed some downtime with the Lord. And we learned that there's an important time to serve, but there's also an important time to rest, and both are necessary. Remember when evening had come, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, send away the crowds. We're, we're in this desolate place and they need something to eat. But Jesus said, no, no, no. You give them something to eat. What we learned out of that whole passage was our difficulties in life have to be, must be measured by the one who is meeting the obligation. Because with Jesus, there's never a shortage of resources. And remember what happened as Jesus broke those five little loaves and those two little sardines. And as he broke those crackers, as it were, creation happened right there in the midst of the crowd when enough food was provided for 5,000 men plus women and children. And they had enough left over to feed each of the disciples. So today we're going to go through a very familiar passage where the disciples go through a storm. And Jesus comes to them walking on the water. So if you have your sermon notes, Roman numeral one, mountaintop prayer. If your Bibles are open, Mark chapter six, let's begin with verse 45. Notice it says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountaintop to pray. Notice, it gives us a time frame. The crowd was just fed. Time to send them away. Jesus makes, this is key, Jesus makes the disciples get into the boat as he sends the crowds away, and then he goes up on the mountain to pray. There in your notes, Jesus is fully man as well as fully God. So he knows what it's like to be tired. 
But being tired, here's the key for us Christians, being tired caused him to spend more time with the Father instead of neglecting that needed time of fellowship. How many times do we get tired and so we neglect that needed time of fellowship? So Jesus gives us the examples. Sometimes I know when I'm worn, all I want to do is sit on the couch and watch something mind-numbing, right? A car building program. I want to see a Nova being torn down to nothing, just so I could check out. And what Jesus is saying is during those times, it's so important because that's when our guard is down. That's when we're weak. It's so important to spend that time with the Lord. I wanted to talk about some times that Jesus needed some alone time with the Lord. Number one there in your notes, Jesus was alone to prepare him for what was coming. After Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, we read in Matthew 4, 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness and tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. Again, you see the dual nature of Jesus, right? Fully God, fully man. 40 days, 40 nights without food, he was hungry. Here's the issue, though. Jesus knew full well what he was about to face. And he knew full well that the next three years was going to be a public ministry. And he needed some alone time with dad to get ready for these next three years. Just serving at a, at a pace that's just so critical. Okay, number two... Jesus was alone to rest and fellowship after ministry. Here in our narrative of Mark 6, not only the disciples had been serving at a relentless pace, but Jesus even more so. And so after he's so tired of serving, he needed some alone time with the Father. Here's one that we don't often associate with the Son of God. Number three, Jesus was alone to grieve the loss of John the Baptist. Matthew 14, 12, then his, John's disciples, came and took away the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. Remember, in the flesh, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. It was his cousin. And, and so he hears of the death of his cousin. And he needs time to grieve. Again, fully man, fully God. And so he needed some alone time with dad because he's grieving the loss of someone. We can all relate. We've all lost loved ones. And so we can relate with this. Number four, here's a very important one for us. Jesus was alone to pray about an important decision. Luke six twelve, He went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose 12 who he named apostles. So after some alone time with God the Father, some prayer all through the night, he gets the, up the next morning, and he appoints 12 apostles. He needed that time with Dad. Number five, Jesus was alone to pray in a time of distress. Matthew 26, 36, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. 
He went a little further, fell on his face, praying, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus was in agony again, being fully God, knowing full well the beatings and the torture and the cross that he was about to face. And so he needed to be alone with God the Father. You know, Jesus often spent time with God the Father, but it wasn't always times of trouble or distress. But Jesus definitely was more fervent during those times. All right, so here's some reassurance. Roman numeral two there in your notes. Jesus was watching. Look at verse 47. It says, now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them and the wind ceased. Let's stop right there. So middle of the night, disciples are out there straining at rowing. Think about this. And Jesus was on land, looking down from the mountain where he was praying, and he's watching every move they make. Nothing escapes his notice. The fourth hour represents the time between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., which means these disciples, catch this, had been rowing and getting nowhere for nine full hours. This is incredible. But Jesus, from the mountain, with his dad, looks down sees them, and he cared about them. There in your notes, the disciples were exhausted and getting nowhere by relying on their own strength and their own efforts. This is what Spurgeon said about that. The apostolic crew rode and rode and rode, and it was no fault of theirs that they made no progress because the wind was contrary to them. The Christian may make little or no headway, and yet it may be no fault of their own because the wind is contrary to us. But what I think is so unique here, again, Jesus is tired, been going at a relentless pace, and he just fed 5,000 men plus women and children and the disciples, sends them away, goes up on the mountain to pray, and as he's getting that well-deserved, well-needed break, he's more concerned with them than himself. There's a lesson in there somewhere. I'm not sure what it is. But notice again, verse 48, he was walking on the sea and he would have passed them by. What does that mean? The Greek word would have in Mark 6, 48 is thelo, which means to wish or to desire. So Jesus desired to pass them right by. Jesus was going to walk all the way across to the other seashore, get onto land, and when they got there, he would be there waiting. That was his desire. However, they were scared, and they cried out. And so Jesus stops his plans and says, okay, I'll meet their need. Mark 6.48 uses a similar verb for past 
that we see in Exodus chapter 33, when God passed before Moses and showed him the tail end of his Shekinah glory. Same word there in your notes. So Jesus walked casually by and would have passed them by, but he only came over because they cried out to him. What a lesson for us. Jesus is always present and waiting for us to cry out to him when we need him. That is so reassuring. These disciples are terrified. They've been rowing for nine hours, getting nowhere. And all of a sudden they see a ghost and they're terrified. What is this ghost walking by the sea? Oh, no. The word trouble means an inward commotion. It means to disquiet the calmness of your soul. I mean, they were terrified. And I guess I would be too. I mean, you're in the middle of the sea, the wind's blowing and going. I've been rowing for nine hours and I look up and here's a guy just kind of cruising by on the waves. I think I'd be terrified. But you see, Jesus didn't go out on the water to scare them. The miracle of him showing up on the waves was meant to reassure them. You don't walk through this storm alone. I am here. He was trying to reassure him, I'll always be there for you. Every single time, every single storm. And notice what he says, I love this. Be of good cheer, why? It is I, do not be afraid. Remember, back up in the story, Jesus made them get on the boat. Jesus, being fully God, knows what's about to happen. I know when I put you guys out on the boat, there's going to be a storm like you can't believe. And I know I'm making you go through this storm. And then he says, it is I. Be of good cheer. Do not be scared. There are several times that Jesus uses these same words all through the New Testament. I love them. I'm going to point out just a few of them to you. One time when Jesus was explaining to his disciples that he was going to have to go to heaven and he was going to be crucified for them. This is what he said in John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you may have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. When Ananias was plotting to kill Paul for preaching Jesus in Jerusalem, this is what we're told in Acts 23. But the following night, the Lord stood by him, that's Paul, and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. How about, remember just a couple weeks ago, we talked about the woman with 12 years of blood flow. And she came and touched Jesus. And remember, she was so scared after clutching onto Jesus. And she was terrified because she knew she just got healed. Luke 8, 48. And he said to her, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. There in your notes. Jesus comforted the scared and worn out disciples by telling them to be of good cheer. Good cheer means to have courage. To have courage. And so... When Jesus says, be of good cheer, have courage, it's me, don't be scared. What he's saying is, I'm going to give you security, I'm going to give you peace, I'm going to see you through this storm, I'm the one who gives you salvation, I'm the one that gives you true courage. Fear not. 
Only Jesus can give those things. In the Greek Septuagint Bible, good cheer are the same words the children of Israel were told when they were running from Pharaoh's army and they were afraid and they cried out to God for help. Exodus 14, 13. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. Catch this, verse 14. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. That's a promise for us today. And so Jesus tells the disciples, be of good cheer. And then immediately notice what happens. As soon as he says the words, the winds stop. Calm sea. Nine hours of rowing, getting nowhere. Jesus says a couple of words and And so what happens? They're greatly amazed. Roman numeral three. Pick it up again. Verse 51. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. For they had not understood about the lows, catch this, because their heart was hardened. That seems to be a blessing and a rebuke all in one verse, does it not? In Matthew's gospel, we're told at this same time, this is when Peter walks on the water. If anyone's been in church more than a couple of times, we've heard the story of how Peter walked on the water. You know, so many people say only Jesus walked on the water. That is not true. Actually, Peter did walk on the water couple of steps, but he did. Matthew 14, 28. Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to Jesus. Notice he walked on the water. But verse 30, when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Wearsby says, at this point, Peter asked Jesus to let him walk on the water, but the Gospel of Mark seems to omit that. Tradition tells us, catch this, that Mark's Gospel was actually Peter's words. So think about this. If Peter is telling Mark what to write in his Gospel, Peter purposely leaves that part out. No, we don't need to tell anybody about that. (laughs) Second man in all of history to walk on the water. No, I don't think we need to let anybody know about that. But I love this narrative in Matthew 14. Imagine Peter. Lord, if it's you, bid me to come. And I got to thinking about that. I thought, who else could it be walking on the sea? At that time, were there like 50 different dudes walking around on the waves out there? Lord, if that's you, bid me to come. No, no, it's me, Barnabas. All these random people just strolling on the sea. John Ortberg asked this question. So did Peter fail? And he says, well, I, I suppose in a way he did. His faith wasn't strong enough. His doubt was stronger. He saw the wind. His eyes were taken off the one who loved him and were put on the storm, so he sank. Therefore, he failed. But where are the other 11? The other 11 failed even more, sitting in the boat. They failed quietly. They failed privately. 
Their failure went unnoticed, uncriticized. Only Peter was publicly criticized. But I got to thinking about this. Maybe, this is a crazy thought, remember later, the early church is going to be started with Peter. Remember, he spoke at Pentecost, 3,000 souls were saved, the beginning of the early church. Maybe, just maybe, Peter's the whole reason why Jesus allowed this storm in the first place. Maybe the other 11 weren't supposed to be there. And the other 11 are watching Peter, and Peter says, Jesus, if that's you, tell me to come. And I mean, in retrospect, don't you want to be Peter? I mean, in retrospect, I want to be Peter. I don't want to be one of the 11 that sat aside going, look, that dude walked on the water. I want to be the guy that stands up. Put me in, put me in. I want to be Peter. There in your notes, Peter displayed radical faith to be able to get out of the boat and be bold enough to walk on the water. Here's a crucial message for you followers this morning. This is for every one of us in here this morning. Jesus has called us to be his disciples. And he knows he can instruct, he can teach, he can empower, he can send us out, he can give us his Holy Spirit to do anything. Be a risk taker, be a Peter. If God calls you, here's the secret, if God calls you to something, test all things by the word of God and hold on to that which is true. Know that you know that you know that God has called you to it, but if God calls you to it, get out of the boat. Go do it. When the Lord called Abraham, think about Abraham. Abraham, leave your father's house. Everything you've ever known, all the comfort, all the security, the financial, everything, leave it all and go to a place. By the way, I'm not going to tell you where until you start going. Then I'll tell you where. How about Stephen? He was preaching Jesus Christ before becoming the first Christian martyr. Acts 7-2 says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, and when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to the land I will show you. There in your notes, many of us like to stay in our comfort zones because taking risks can be scary. But the Lord honors those who will be risk takers in his kingdom as he leads so when the Lord presents an opportunity, take it. You see, here's the thing. I said this before, but it is an oxymoron to say no, Lord. Let me explain that. You can say no, Jesus, and that's just fine. But you can't say no, Lord. It's an oxymoron because Lord means that he's boss and he's master and he's the one calling the shots. So if he's your Lord and he's your master and he's the one calling the shots, you can't say no. It's an oxymoron to say no, Lord. So the next time Jesus calls you to do something, you say no. Make sure you say no, Jesus, not no, Lord. <laughs> but notice how the rest of the disciples reacted to this miracle. This is incredible to me. We're told in this passage that the disciples had failed to believe the miracles about the fish and the loaves. Now, time out. They were sitting there while all these thousands of people got fed. They watched it happen. And now, they don't believe the miracle. There's none so blind as those who will not see. And notice it says, because of their unbelief, their hearts became hard. 
Wow. Since Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he's more than able to calm the storms in our life. But there in your notes, notice verse 52 says, the disciples had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. We have to be so careful not allow our hearts to become hardened when Jesus wants to give us spiritual lessons within our lives and ministries. Here's how we do that one way anyway is to be careful that we're not so short-sighted that we forget everything that he's done in our lives. And remember the time that the Lord has showed up even against all odds, he was there. You know, it's so easy Right When we're in the middle of it and we're crying out, oh, God, save me. Oh, God, save me. Oh, God, save me. And God saves us. In that moment, we're like, yes. Five minutes later, we're like, well, I can reason that away. That guy coming on the desolate road to save me, that wasn't God doing that. You know, that check showing up in the mail, that was just a coinky dink. Right? That, that wasn't a godsidence. That was a coincidence. You know, God's showing up in that. That wasn't God. Don't over-spiritualize everything, pastor. Come on. Things just happen. God doesn't have his hands on, you know, us right now. He doesn't care about us right now. But in the moment when we were crying out in desperation and God showed up, we're like, oh. we became Pentecostal for me. Oh, praise Jesus. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, 10 minutes later, we were reasoning away. God didn't show up. All right, Roman numeral four. Many were made well. Verse 53. When they crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. Ran through that whole surrounding region and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. Whenever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. As many as touched him, catch this, were made well. William Barclay said this, if there was one thing about the ancient world, what they needed was compassion, pity, and mercy. There was no concern for sick or feeble people. There was no provision for the aged. There was no social security. There was nothing for the mentally and emotionally disturbed. There in your notes, Christ, however, in his appearance brought love, affection, and care to a world of apathy and complacency. So the boat lands on the other side. Break time's over, boys. Time to serve again. And they landed in the area near where Mary Magdalene was from. And as soon as they anchored, people start recognizing him, and here comes a crowd again. You know, Mark records something that probably happened every day in Jesus' ministry. Wherever he showed up, crowds start coming. And so he shows up at this new location, and all these people come out, and all they want to do, just let me touch you, and let me have some of the power. The Apostle John ended his gospel saying these words, John 21, 25. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, catch this, I suppose that even the whole world could not contain the books in which they were written. We have four Gospels that tells us kind of what Jesus did for three years of public ministry. And what John is saying, there were so many miracles, so many of them, 
The whole world couldn't contain the books if they were all written down. David Guzik said, we see the power of Jesus over the laws of nature. Catch this. Normally, 5,000 people are not fed by one small lunch. Normally, men don't walk on water. Normally, the sick are not instantly healed. None of this was normal except by the power of God. And notice how Jesus cares. Everyone who came to him and touched him was healed. Everyone. Everyone but you. No, everyone who came and touched Jesus was healed. Everyone who will by faith receive the free gift of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Everyone but you. No, everyone who will. The people brought paralyzed and sick people from the countryside, from the city, from the villages, everywhere. There in your notes, Matthew Henry said, the men of that place presently knew Jesus and knew what mighty works he did wherever he came. What a universal healer he was. I wonder if these people heard about the healing of the demon-possessed man. Maybe they have heard about the woman with 12 years of blood flow. Maybe they've heard about, you know, people being raised from the dead or the deaf hearing and the blind seeing. Maybe they've heard about this. Or did they just come for bread? So let's get practical this morning. First there in your notes. Many Christians get down on themselves because of past failures and allow those failures to prevent them from serving the Lord in the present. Listen. When the Lord saved you, none of that was a mystery to him. When the Lord saved you, he knew every failure you did and every failure you will do. And he loved you anyway. What an incredible God we serve. God is all-knowing. And what he's calling us to do from those failures is to turn from them, run to him, and press on while we serve. Again, John Ortberg Failure is not an event. It's a judgment about an event. Failure is not something that happens to us, but it's a label we attach to things. It's a way we think about outcomes. Think about this. When Peter walked on the water, he had a setback, but he did not fail. He took a risk. When Jesus said, come, he went. William Barclay said, Peter never finally failed. For always in the moment, when Peter failed, he clutched the garment of Christ. The wonderful thing about Peter is every time he failed, he got up and ran to Jesus every single time. And every failure, perceived failure, brought him closer to Jesus every time. Barclay also said, as been well said, a saint is not a man who never fails. A saint is a man who gets up and goes on again every time he fails. Peter's failures made him love Jesus more and more every time. So again, where were the other 11? And I love to look at this. They were in the boat. And the disciples had hard hearts because of their unbelief. And Jesus is saying, look, I'm the only way to true peace. I already know. And, and Peter, you could just imagine, he's so down on himself. But I want you to think about something. What if Peter allowed this failure to tell him the lie that you'll never be used of the kingdom again? What happens on the day of Pentecost when he preaches? 
What if he didn't preach? I can't preach, Jesus. You see, I'm just not good enough. Well, you're in good company. None of us are good enough. Trust him. See, here's the thing is by trusting him, he allows us to walk on the very thing that scares us. The very failure that we've had. Jesus lets us walk on that. If we all stop serving the first time we failed, who would serve Jesus? Who would we have? We would have nobody serving. Here's the difference. We all fail. What do you do with the failure? What do you do with it? Do you get up, seek forgiveness, turn around from it and run towards God and press on? Or do you believe the lie of the enemy, take that failure and I'm never going to be any good for the kingdom ever again? Matthew 14, 29. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Peter looked at the waves and the wind, and instead of keeping his eyes on Jesus, he looks at that and he sinks. Where is Jesus when you fail? I'll tell you right where he is. He's calm in the seas so that you can get up and walk to him. Matthew 14, 31, and immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. At the end of your life, and you're standing at the throne of grace, if you're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, there will be no failures. Your failures will be wiped away. The only thing you're going to see is the time that Jesus took you and guided you right back to him. Romans 8.28 says, For we know all things work together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. With our failures, the Lord is faithful to forgive us. And here's the good news. He will turn those failures around for your good and his glory, because that's what my God does. My God is good. You see, here's the final point, and this one's the most important. If you are covered by the precious blood of Jesus Christ there in your notes, failures are not fatal because we're redeemed and loved. Here's the thing. When it comes to failures, are you trusting in you and your righteousness to make you whole before God? Are you trusting in the shed blood of Jesus Christ to cover you? And he sees you holy and righteous and perfect and redeemed. That's the only question in life. Failures are simply times for us to grow and mature. And by the way, if the failure is good enough, here's what I've learned. Here's good news for you. If you fail good enough, or I should say you fail bad enough, you'll never want to do that one again. <laughs> Trust me on that. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on back up. Every week we'll be in the back. We'd love to pray for you. And, and can I just encourage you? If you failed, you are in good company. I don't know how many people are in the room today, but I guarantee you every single one of us have failed and fallen short of the glory of God. We're told so in Romans 3.23. But we're also told that the free gift of salvation is through Jesus Christ, his son, Romans 6.23. And Romans 5.8 says, for while we were yet sinners, that's when Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners. You see, Jesus wouldn't have to come if we didn't have failures. Jesus came because we had failures. He knew it and he's willing to die for it. Let's pray.
Thank you for listening, and we hope that you are blessed. If you'd like to find out more info about our church or any other resources like sermon notes or things like that, you can check out our website at livingfaithclamath.com. Make sure, if you haven't already, to subscribe or like us on whatever your favorite podcast app is. You'll find us at Living Faith Fellowship Klamath Falls. Again, be blessed. Be blessed.